Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I am speaking with Paul Rossi. I became aware of Paul when I read um, in Barry Weiss's Substack. He'd written an article slash letter, I guess, directed at his school about some of the stuff that was going on. Call it CRT, call it you know diversity training or culturally sensitive training. Um, and then there was some fallout from that. So I thought I'd get him to come on and talk a bit about that and a bit of what was going on in education. Hey, Paul, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you, Obey. Um, So yeah, as I mentioned, I, I read that article in Barry Weiss's, or I read, you know, the Substack Barry Weiss did. And so you'd written that, you know, article slash letter. So if you wouldn't mind mm -hmm. starting with that and we can go from there. Sure. Uh, so uh, I um, started, the, the article came out in April, mm -hmm. mid-April, um, but I kind of started to get in, in serious touch with the school around, you know, late February because of my participation in a segregated, racially segregated meeting, Zoom meeting for white faculty and, and uh, students only. Uh, and in this meeting, which was supposed to be a meeting about self-care during the pandemic, up came the slide by the facilitator, uh, very well-known slide, but at this point um, about white supremacy culture, make, you know, claiming that individualism and objectivity uh, and a right to comfort were characteristics of white supremacy. When I questioned some of those things publicly in the meeting in front of 200 students and about 50 of my colleagues, um, I, you know, I was, I became a scapegoat basically for the administration, even though many of the students and faculty shared my questions and were, were as vocal as I was uh, in, in, in raising concerns about the content of the, of the segregated meeting. And then because of that, I was put through um, a little bit of a um, series of punitive uh, things by the administration where they were trying to recover their, you know, their um, sort of recover their uh, branding as an anti-racist institution and, and distance themselves from me. And as a result of some of those things, I wrote my letter about what I'd experienced at the school for the past few years. Okay, great. Uh, I shouldn't say great, but that's one of the things that, like, you know, the anti-racist credentials of the school, but, you know, segregation in the name of anti-racism does not sound like, you know, what I would think anti-racism is. Yeah, you wouldn't, would you? I mean, I certainly wouldn't, uh, but there is a very, con you know, uh, very convoluted justifications for these things based in the, the theoretical uh, premises. Um, and uh, you know, I find it, I find it fascinating, uh, you know, the justifications for it, even though, you know, they're, they're, I find them debilitating for the people who are um, forced to undergo them, like the students and, and my colleagues as well. Now, if I remember correctly, you were at a private school and, and I, I started following this a while ago and I only really started following the education stuff probably around 2018. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I was initially, I was just more as because, you know, I was getting called a white supremacist for criticizing Islam. I was like, where the hell is that coming from? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, um, A, I'm not white. <laughs> you know, so mm -hmm. But um, so like, I mean, I'd, I'd read about the Fieldstone Academy. I'd read about, you know, uh, Dalton School and stuff that had happened there. 
so I'm just curious, like when you see what happened at the Philstone Academy, when they started segregating their kids, you know, 45 minutes a week and telling them to you know, appreciate their race, except for the white kids, or they're telling them, okay, you're all oppressors and stuff like that. Like, doesn't, wouldn't administrators say, okay, you know, this experiment's been run. Like, why are they, you know, is this like the whole thing of real communism hasn't been tried type of thing? Or do they all think they can do it better than the others? Or like, like, like what's the impetus for that? Yeah. I mean, I think the way they look at it, it's, it's, it is sort of a Puritan mindset. The idea is that the world is hopelessly corrupted by racism. Um, mm-hmm. And that you, when you couple that with the blank slate kind of idea of human nature, uh, you wind up with what's a sort of de facto essentialism where, you know, we can't avoid our racial coding or our gender coding or, our, you know, whatever our socially imposed identities are. So, to ignore those things or to try to reach for some common humanity is to um, evade the conditions in which we're all born into. So the idea is that by forming affinity groups, they could be optional or mandatory. The meetings that I were in was in were, were mandatory, but the idea is that you gain a race, you, you admit and sort of come to see your racial programming, um, whether you know, whether it's as an oppressor or as a marginalized or subaltern or however you want to, you know, I see these different groups. And then only when you have that under that understanding of your racialized identity, can you proceed to break down and dismantle these structures by, you know, or, or celebrate and use them as a mode of empowerment. You know, if you're, if you're in the marginalized group. Yeah. I mean, like I look at that, you know, the, the underlying oppression, the underlying, like, you know, basically like that's the, you know, from what I read, that's from critical theory where you look at the, you know, you break down the, you, you take away the veil of the world and you see all the oppression. And I mean, okay, I'm not a religious person and an atheist, um, you know, but I equated that to Ezekiel. I'm like, okay, well, you know, mm-hmm. Ezekiel pulled away the veil and he saw paradise. These guys pull away the veil and all they see is oppression and, and awfulness. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's, it's such a weird way of looking at things. I mean, you know, if you read James Baldwin or if you listen to, you know, or you read the speeches from Martin Luther King or you know, anything like that, or read Toni Morrison, it's, yeah, they can talk about awful things, but there's a message of hope in there. But this, it just seems like you're, you're not giving kids any hope. You're not giving, you know, like, this is your lot in life and this is what you're stuck with. And I mean, how is, okay, we can get into the the whole education thing, like how, you know, like not a lot of kids can read and write and all that right now, but like, how is that supposed to help kids grow up into be functioning adults? Well, you know, it's not, that's not the point. The point is not to help the kid become a functioning adult. The point is to affect revolution. So you are, you know, revolution is the collective liberation is the mode by which an individual can attain essentially like spiritual health or well-being. It's not, it's a completely collectivist mindset that we had at our school. That is we, uh, groups, group identity, collective identity, these were the things that would save us, not, and whether or not an individual can go on to have a happy, productive life was, you know, uh, it would have been an outcome of their, you know, successful, you know, political activism or self or, or coming to consciousness. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what I found really crazy. 
frankly, um, and against the mission of what education is supposed to be. You know, sort of on this, like, I always say, like, you know, I've got a lot of problems with, uh, you know, call it whatever you want, critical race theory, when it comes to race or the gender theory stuff. Um, but my biggest issue with all these things is it, it talks about the secondary issues. Like if you're talking about education, again, like I said, I just started looking at the stats and stuff and, you know, when only 35% of the kids can read proficiently or only, I think it was 22% of the kids can do math proficiently. Like mm -hmm. that should be your biggest goal, not, you know, not dividing kids into affinity groups, not talking about disrupting and dismantling the systems of oppression. Again, where if it's a parent looking at this, because I know a lot of parents all of a sudden since last year have been really paying a lot of attention to this. Like how how do school boards justify that? I, I like I said, I believe you're in a private school, but like you know, how do if you're asking people to pay, you know, like I think Fieldstone Academy and or Dalton, they were like forty five thousand a year or something like that. Like how can you? Yeah, justify they're all that? in the range of like forty thousand, fifty thousand. You know, some of them get up to fifty seven thousand. Yeah. You know, it's 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 culturally responsive education. So the way that you know, with, with very, I think, dubious research behind it, the idea is that the reason why um, minority schools, schools with minority populations are doing so poorly is a, res is a result of, say, too many white teachers. Or, you know, it's culturally, it's a move to culturally responsive education where, you know, if we only made people feel welcome and comfortable, or if we only communicated these things in such a way that these students could quote unquote see themselves represented properly in the material or in the teacher, then, then outcomes would be different. And I just find absolutely very spurious evidence for that, but it's extremely helpful if you are um, for various reasons, trying to hide the ball for incompetence in these schools, at, in these public schools, or if you're in a member of a teacher's unit for dis, you know, displacing the responsibility for, you know, incompetence. Um, so there are a lot of stakeholders that benefit from framing the issue in this way. I see it as sort of, you know, um, that kind of problem coupled, you know, a, as a major current as well as ideological true believer commitments that are being made. I think some of it is just functionally, it defends the, the major players from having to accept responsibility for what's going on. Okay, so kind of passing the buck. Now, yeah. getting back to you, like you were a math teacher. Now I'm assuming that you weren't the only one at that school, but wasn't anyone else concerned about this? Wasn't anyone else saying, well, this is not going to work, but like you spoke up that you were, you know, you were, I guess you were fired. Um, is that just a, quell dissent in the school like okay we've made an example of this guy if you do this this is what's going to happen to you or you know if all let's say the whole math department on mass came up and said this is wrong like i mean what are they gonna do fire all of you or like i mean it's well you know i think that it was the public way that i did it and i meant yeah. to do it publicly i think yeah. that there are many many of my colleagues have approached me with concerns about some of the excesses of these things even though they're very left liberal some of them had problems with some of the identity politics and they would say things like, Oh, I wouldn't go as far as you, Paul, but uh, you know, I, this is weird or this is kind of wrong or, uh, but 
what what moved me to do what I did was because I had students approach me and I, I knew that there were students who felt that they couldn't question this material when it was being brought up as utterly factual, like, like it is the foundation of reality. And they weren't, they felt that, you know, they couldn't question it without running afoul of their friends or the social pressures or, or, or even in some cases having academic consequences for questioning it. And, and I was pleased that when I did that, it did sort of break the ice as one student later told me, uh, I have the transcript from the chat and, and in that transcript, not only, you know, students were, at, were saying things like, oh, you know, I don't think I'm ignorant just because I'm white. And, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable with splitting up meetings by race. And even some teachers came in and defended some of the content of what I was saying. So even though they tried to make it look like it was just, you know, one teacher, myself, namely, it was clear from anyone in that meeting that it wasn't just me. Uh, and that was, I think, what was so concerning to them that they felt, I mean, they could feel the, the ideology kind of crumbling beneath them. So, so in their public statement to the school community, they had to make this long reaffirmation of their commitment to anti-racism. And, you know, the, the project of the school is to, quote unquote, undo racism. Um, yeah, that's a big ask. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't see how strengthening everybody's socially imposed racial identities is going to get us there. I don't, I don't see how that works, but, um, it, what it does do though, is it allows the time horizon to stretch infinitely mm -hmm. and to allow for a sort of, uh, a diversity industrial complex to intermediate and charge the school large sums of money and create positions within the school to, to, to manage it. I think that's, that's part of it. Yeah. The money aspect, uh, a couple of years ago, I spoke with, um, a teacher out of Texas and she'd started up a thing called donors choose. And there was a hashtag going around, clear the lists. And it was just, I mean, you know, whenever I could, I spent a couple hundred bucks here and there buying stuff off teachers lists. Like they would make Amazon lists and, you know, people would buy stuff for them. And some of the things I saw were like pencil sharpeners. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you're in the United States, you know, quote unquote, the richest country in the world. And you can't put pencil sharpeners in the classroom, but you're spending 20 grand on Ibram Kendi. Like, there is a problem of priorities of where you're spending the money there. Yeah. And I think there's tremendous anxiety among, um, among educators to get on board with this and administrators and school boards that they, they need to signal that that they are good people. And I think that's what's driving so much of this is that the moral vacuum that people need something to establish that they're on the right side of history, uh, which is, you know, a very particular kind of moral righteousness, but people, especially educators, they, they tend to be good people. So I think they're even more susceptible to these kind of many messianic, um, you know, visions of how to be good. And so I think that's part of it. Yeah. That's, I mean, when you, when you mentioned, you know, people want to do the right thing, it's like I, a couple of years back, I read the book kindly inquisitors, the Jonathan Rick book. And, you know, I mean, he was talking about stuff in the nineties, but when he called it the humanitarian threat to liberal science, I mean, that's exactly what it is. You're playing on people's good intentions. You're warping that around. And it's like, you know, don't you want to be a good person? Don't you want to do that? And, 
I mean, you're basically making people do awful things in the name of goodness. I mean, one of the things, okay, when I first came back from overseas, I saw all this stuff going on and there was this Milton quote um, from Paradise Lost that kept going through my head. And it was like, you know, a batch of the devil stood and felt how awful goodness is. And I'm like, you people have turned goodness awful. And that's exactly what they're doing. Like it's, and then I was like, okay, you're going to have an overcorrection. I thought maybe Trump was the overcorrection. I thought maybe Charlottesville was the overcorrection that would people would snap out of it. But I mean, I'm reading stuff in uh, the APA where the like white children are growing a larger, like there's a larger percentage of white children growing a white identity. And that oh, yeah, all, yeah. I mean, and that's, like, I, I should say that's not a bug. That's a feature. Um, like they want the people pushing this, the more division they create, the more it validates their view of the world. So if you are a CRT apologist or you someone that believes in that, if you create more white supremacy, you can simply say, well, see, look, I told you now it's just overt. It was covert before. Now it's overt. So so that's none of the things that can come out of this backlash, like you're mentioning, which I agree with you, is going to be disconfirming to anyone who is on board with it, um, which is extremely scary and dangerous. And I, uh, that bothers, that really, really worries me. Um, um, are you worried about a backlash from parents? Like, I know there's a lot been going on last year about school choice, which I think like, I'll give you an example for myself. I went to eight different schools between kindergarten and grade six. And that a couple of times wow. was because we moved, but most of it was because, my mom was like, oh, you know what? I heard this school is better. I heard that school is better. So I just kept going to a different school. Um, mm-hmm. But she had that choice. And these were all public schools. None of them were private. You know? But she had that choice. So now you, when you're seeing this push for school choice, I mean, a lot of people are saying, well, that's an attack on public schools. You're going to destroy the public school system. But you know, if a charter school fails and it's not doing it, they, they fail. They go out of business. If a private school doesn't do what they're supposed to do they go to business so you know i don't want to see public school system collapse i you know shore it up make it better because yeah there are neighborhoods that need it there are communities that need a public school but are you afraid of something like that where there's so much backlash from parents that it's like okay we're just going to give up on the whole enterprise you know i i i think about that too and i i don't i don't know what's right and wrong i do know however that you know, public schools are a complete failure. I mean, mm-hmm. as far as most of them in major urban centers and that there are families that are trapped in a situation where, you know, they have a monopoly. Um, they're, they have to participate in this government monopoly and it is not working for them. It is not working for those kids. And I, I think that the, the statistics on, on communities they preferred, they would love to have some kind of school choice in New York City. Charter schools, as I understand it, are, are just a non-starter. New charter schools, there are some, but um, I, I think the competition would actually help public schools. I mean, I'm not an expert on this mm-hmm. issue, but I think having, having viable alternatives is going to make public schools have to earn their students back and rebuild the trust, the public trust, because right now it's just broken in so many communities and, you know, that need it desperately. Um, And there are other, other issues that we could talk about that I am not well-versed on things like 
you know, the, the property tax as a yeah. as a way of funding schools. I think that's that should be addressed because it's not fair, and I would like to see that addressed somehow. But these are complicated, complex issues. But I think school choice is an important part of that. Now, I, I know you're a teacher, and I you know, I don't want to ask you things that you probably don't know so if you know if i ask you something and you're not sure okay. just let me know but like i'd sure. read uh thomas soul's latest book charter schools and their and their i read that one too yeah and, and then i i spoke with ian Rowe, and he talked about this you know and you know soul was talking about the same building serving the same neighborhood half of it's a district school the other half's a charter school and the kids in the charter school are you know getting some of the best results in the country whereas the district school is getting some of the worst so now when you're, you know, the mayor of New York City or whatever, mayor of a city or, you know, school superintendent or anything like that, would you have that kind of data in front of you? Like, how do you ignore that? Well, you ignore that because who's who's funding your campaign? Yeah. I mean, that these it's just like, do you see on the waterfront with Marlon Brando? Yeah. Okay. So what happens if someone wants to unload at another dock and the guys aren't getting paid? You know, someone's going to get their legs broken. Okay, we don't have that anymore. Um, but you do have immense leverage from organizations that function um, above, you know, what counts as above board these days, but it's just causes intense pressure um, when you have union funded campaigns. Yeah, I mean, I... organizations. I mean, there's just so much. You you don't have the you don't have the the ability as a politician who gets elected by the ground game run you know also there's the ground game in these elections like you just have it there are just so many forces working against you know going by the data that it's sad um, but I think that's the reality. Okay, I mean the media is another issue, but like okay, like everyone talks about the NRA funding you know the GOP and all that, but there's not a lot of talk about teachers unions funding the Democrats. And I mean, is that by design, do you think, or is that just like, it's easier to focus on the NRA because, you know, guns are evil. Well, I think the media, you know, the media leans left. They're going to talk about They're going to make the, the boogeyman, you know, those relationships on the right. I think there's their fingers on the scale. I think there's, it's part of it. Um, I, I wish it got more attention, frankly, but I think, uh, do you think after this year you might start seeing some change? Because I mean, okay, again, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on it. So I'm kind of seeing a lot of it. I mean, there's a lot of parents, like, you know, frankly, just pissed off and, yeah. you know, rightfully so. So do you think politicians might change a little bit now, or is it the money's just too nice? No, I think politicians. I mean, the good the good news is I'm I'm getting uh, lots of emails from parents and teachers that supported my article that are saying things like, "Oh, I didn't even you know I didn't even know this was an issue before the pandemic," or I just you know I was just trying to get my kids back into the school, and the unions were the the teachers unions were saying, you know, only if it's completely safe will we go in uh, and and do our jobs. So they lost the unions lost a lot of I guess I would say um, credibility from from parents and and voters by really protecting themselves over 
to a degree that that was excessive over doing their jobs. At least that that is really how it's perceived, and that hurt their credibility. And then on top of that, um, you know, the uh, I guess the AFT and the ANEA coming out in favor of CRT is going to have a, an impact on that. So I think they're, you know, they don't have that long of a leash anymore. Well, I just saw like a couple of things. Um, the NEA scrubbed some stuff from 2019 that showed that they were failing, you know, reading and writing and all that. They just scrubbed it straight off their website. And it's, you know, I, if I'm a parent, I see that I'm going to get, you know, quite pissed, but just like part of the, okay. I don't want to blame, like, like I said, I, this is, you know, there's, it's not, it's not a single silver bullet here. Like I know there's a lot of moving parts, but once the pandemic happened and parents started seeing what was going on in the classroom, like maybe they weren't paying attention before for all kinds of reasons, you know, like single parents, um, like a couple of the States have started putting in those, like, so, you know, quote unquote free range kids laws where, you know, you, if you let your 10 year old or 11 year old go down the road to the park, you're not going to have, you know, child protective services knock on your door type of thing. Right. Like, like, do you think things like that would help where, parents have to be a interested in what's going on with their kids. And I, I'm not saying parents aren't, but they also have to have the time to be able to look over the kids schoolwork because the curriculum could say, okay, we're going to do culturally responsive, you know, education. And that sounds nice and it sounds great. Okay. This, but until you get into the nuts and bolts of what's actually being taught in that classroom, you don't know. So like, do you think there's gonna be more of a push for things like that? Or do you like, would you like to see some things like that change? Whereas parents have a little bit more time to look at stuff. Oh, I love it. I mean, parents, that's, you know, every, they're incredibly busy and, and overtaxed and with everything that's happening, it's mm -hmm. very hard to keep, keep your eyes on things. And, and one thing I would love to do, I'm, I'm working with a couple of people on this right now um, and, and a teacher network, establishing a teacher network and also with parents where we can, you know, create a, a map that actually crosses over all the order, all the existing organizations where you can see curriculum in your district. Um, and we, you know, we hope to be able to execute FOIA requests on curriculum and, and also collect from volunteers so that no matter what county you live in, you can mm -hmm. see what, what children are learning without, you know, being rifling through your, your child's backpack, you know, or, or having to go to great lengths to, to obtain it. Um, and then connecting people who have concerns about those things in an anonymous way. I just want to get back because you mentioned working with a couple of people, but I just want to get back to that in a second, but that what's going on in the classrooms, like I think it was North Carolina that passed uh, legislation or has it proposed where it has to be transparency in the curriculum. But I think, and they said, okay, you have to show the year, like the previous year's lessons plans. So it's not just, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to read, uh, Huck Finn or we're going to read Cry the Beloved Country or whatever it's how you're going to teach that like I was speaking to someone yesterday um, and, I, and I use this as an apple I said okay you can take Huck Finn and you can teach it you know the way I kind of learned it where it was okay yo Huck realizing that this was all wrong and he you know he hears Jim crying about his family and let's let's Jim go at the, you know like you know he realizes that you know there's a common humanity there Jim's crying about his family the same way Huck would miss his family and like all that you know, realizes mm -hmm. this is wrong or you could be a quote-unquote woke teacher and say well that's jim just you know using uh sorry that's huck using jim's emotional labor and exploiting that 
and being a white savior. I mean, you can take that book and teach it in two different ways and get a completely different message. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's, I mean, that that's completely missing the point. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and really it's just so self-serving. Yeah. Um, that what winds up happening is that the ideology winds up becoming more important than what's healthy for people. Um, uh, so yeah, God, uh, exactly. So you need to know, you need to know exactly how it's being taught and, and you know, what is the lesson plan? Yeah, I know some people are saying I'll put cameras in the classroom, but like, okay, I'm not for cameras in the classroom. I, I don't think because I don't know if you could teach properly, you know, even if you're, all good intention you want to do well but then you're kind of second guessing yourself at every moment because okay mm-hmm. you know what if i say something wrong or whatever that would be hard i mean i would yeah. i would find that very hard as a teacher to have a camera in the classroom it would really be stifling mm-hmm. to you know personality being an engaging teacher because mm-hmm. you do need to have some leeway where you can't be thinking about what the least common denominator if someone's going to object to you every second um but, uh, you know, I, I think in some ways these laws are kind of missing the point um, because, I mean, they, they, it, is, it is important. And I think I do defend, you know, the making of laws mm-hmm. as, as a small d democratic means to restore what parents want their kids to be learning, especially, you know, if we're talking about K through 12 and particularly K through eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I know I, I have colleagues that, teach CRT and, and unapologetically so, and they are committed to collective liberation of, of, of what is now called the global majority. Uh, and so to them, and, and some of them are very talented and they will a not be deterred by this and B uh, they will find a way to teach things under the radar. For example, if someone recently on Twitter pointed out the book teaching to transgress, by bell hooks and that's part of her trilogy of books on how you know pedagogical toolkit and and a narrative by telling a a great story a teacher can avoid running afoul of the laws and still make the point so using narrative in really clever creative ways is something that a, a master teacher can do because in the classroom the teacher is you know they're in charge and they can run the, the class any way they want uh, essentially. So they can get around these things. And many of these teachers are very charismatic. And so I've been looking into some of the DEI consultancies and how they, how, how some of the best ones, and when I say the best ones, I mean the most artful are, are pushing back on the parents that are pushing back and the kinds of narratives that they're telling now. And it really is, these are some phenomenally skilled educators and it is remarkable to see them able to tell a story that communicates things like white comfort or silence equals violence without actually in a ham-handed fashion putting up a slide that says, you know, white comfort or they don't have they don't have to spell it out. They can just tell a story that leaves the student with that impression and gives them a moral to the story that is clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I find I'm not sure how much purchase these laws are going to actually have. Uh, on the other, on the flip side, I think they might actually have a chilling effect on open discussion. I think that is a problem, at the, especially at the high school level. You, 
I do think that we need to have sort of free flowing discussions and a teacher can be accused of, of, of running afoul of the law simply by tacitly maybe nodding or not objecting when a student says something about, you know, all black people are oppressed or all white people are oppressors or something like that. Like they can be impugned simply for letting it happen or maybe giving a sign that it's okay. I think that, I think the teachers will be worried about that. So it could go either way. Um, yeah, I mean, like the laws, like I, I agree with you there. They're, I think they're, except for the one in Idaho, and I, I don't want to say I've read them all because mm-hmm. you know there, there's a lot of them, but out of the ones I've read, I think the one in Idaho was the best because all it just did was reaffirm uh, the Civil Rights Act. And it even mentions a couple of you know state legislations that are civil rights. It doesn't talk about how kids should feel or anything like that. Because I think putting in the mm-hmm. talk of feeling and all that, that, that's just way too much. Like just yeah. leave that out. But just, you know, say you cannot teach anything. Like I basically, it says you can't hold people responsible for the sins of the past. Like, you know, like it's, you know, the, the sins of the father aren't going to pass onto the son, right? Like it's, it, mm-hmm. like you, you don't do that. Which I think if you had a, and again, I, I, I looked at it from the way of, okay, we've lost all trust. Like, I mean, I, I don't trust anything anymore after, especially mm-hmm. after this last year, you know, like, um, and so if you give that, it might just give parents a little bit of a warm fuzzy. Okay. We've got something we can trust. And it's just, like I said, if you reaffirm those, those laws without getting into like the feeling thing, I think then that's a decent legislation. It gives, I mean, there's still going to have to be litigation if, if it has to go that route, it's still going to have to be you know, other kind of things, but it's just another layer of support type of thing and i think it is necessary because mm-hmm. you know the federal existing laws the way that the the bar is so high to actually mm-hmm. pursue a claim and to have it picked up by you know doj or you know the federal in the, in this situation i don't think it's i think there needs to be um, some reinforcing at the state level so that so that parents have an option yeah. another option that's easier to to prosecute yeah or like maybe i don't know an ombuds ombudsman board or something like that that's kind of independent that you can go to that's you know it's because i mean frankly if i was a parent and my kid came home and said that you know well i'm oppressed because i'm brown or like you hear the things like you know white adjacent like asians are white adjacent i'm like <laughs> you know like yeah what the hell is that <laughs> well there's there's a there's this thing that really is so fascinating to me is the the proliferation of the idea of whiteness and blackness, like at this point, um, you know, with these concepts, we've racialized culture now to the extent where, you know, race subsumes and, and substitutes for culture. So you have this floating signifier that can be latched onto any emotion or concept whatsoever. So you have you when know, a white comfort, the, the, um, the black students demanding change at my school talked about white opinions and how, you know, we, we shouldn't have to listen to white opinions. And I was like, what is a white opinion? You can stick whiteness is now, um, you know, you have black joy. Blackness is, is a quality which can float between any person or race or, you know, and, uh, you know, even though it's, but, but what's interesting is like there's segregation in those things. So a, a black person exhibiting whiteness is not good. And a white person exhibiting blackness is not good. So there's this segregation that's going on. Um, and I just think it's so, it's so awful. Um, 
and it and, and it's also just this immediate justification for anything you can talk about internalized white supremacy yeah. you know multiracial whiteness is simply just an explanation for anyone who disagrees with you you can wash your hands of it you don't have to think about it it just maintains the ideology uh and it's that is the thing that scares me the most is that these these concepts can just be applied willy-nilly to things that uh, you know and also it encourages performative a performative aspect right so it's not enough to be brown or black if you are racially coded that way you have to exhibit blackness you have to engage and and in, as part of your journey to consciousness you have to man you're encouraged to manifest your blackness in a particular way like they did at, at my school uh, and i think kids are getting pushed into these these archetypes without you know, for the benefit of the administration and the teachers, because they get to feel like, oh, we're helping them be authentic. We're helping these kids be themselves. When in fact, they're pushing them to be a particular way. Um, or if, you, if you're white, then you can't avoid your racial coding and you have to acknowledge it and then take responsibility and your complicity and all this other stuff. So, so it's on both sides of the equation, it's, it's really bad. But I mean, it's also hypocritical because I mean, if you take the whole... And like these, this is some of the stuff that I would agree with um, when it comes to things like CRT. Okay, so yes, the the whole concept of race started in Europe, and you know, but they were classifying things, and mm-hmm. they put these racial identities on people. But now, if someone says I'm acting white, I'm like, you're doing the same thing. Like you're putting a racial identity on me, and you're just you're you're leaving me no choice. I mean, just being completely hypocritical in the way you talk. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just want to get back, like you'd mentioned, you've been working with a couple of people. So like the organizations that you're seeing popping up, like, like, do you, like, I know, do you want, do you hope that they're more localized or would you rather them be like national organizations? Both. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the, the local or the local focused ones are the ground game and the national mm-hmm. ones you think of as the air game. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, and so you, you absolutely need uh, what we're seeing go viral. Uh, parents at school board meetings, which is fantastic. Um, you need that. I mean, I think um, Parents Defending Ed is doing great work and other organizations are great. Um, but then, you, you know, some of the other organizations, FAIR is building a national network. They kind of have, they seem to be doing almost everything or, or trying to do things all over the place, which is good. Um, I think there is a bit of a vertical, sometimes a disconnect between the intellectuals up here in the press, but then you have like the parents on the ground. And I think the parents on the ground really need more support from these national organizations, these large organizations. And I, you know, I, I worry that they're not getting the resources they need to actually do the work on the ground and in advocating for themselves. I think like, like any movement, there are organizations that are building their war chests for you know, political action or whatever. But I think that I'm, I worry that the, the ordinary Joe and Jane's are going to get, are going to not get what they need. That's, that's my concern. Sort of like, you know, Camille Foster makes this point about the tea party. Like what is the tea party? What's the lasting legacy of the tea party? You know, uh, some people got into office, some organizations got some money, 
I, I don't I don't think this is the same. I worry that it could be the same, but I don't think it is yet. I, and I I I want to encourage everyone I I speak to to actually get the money to the people that need it. Kind of sticking with this because I mean, like I said, I'd spoken to someone yesterday. It's uh, it was a gentleman by the name of Jason Littlefield who's doing like a, a new version of um, SEL. Oh yeah, I th- and, I know Jason. Yeah, and uh, you know, I said okay, like anything you do right now is just a stopgap. If you don't fix the colleges of education, if you don't fix, you know, the academy, or ten years down the road, you're just going to have far more teachers who think this way than you do now. So I mean. Even if you're like, okay, we're going to homeschool or we're going to uh, build a little pod school for our street and everyone on the, you know, but where are you going to get the teachers? If the teachers aren't trained to teach in a classical liberal sense, as opposed to like, you know, the social justice sense, who's going to fill those shoes? Like, yeah. I, mean, like I said, that it's, it's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah. I mean, and it, you know, to some degree you might say, well, if we can change the K through 12, um, you know, through laws, legislation, and, and mm. curriculum alternatives, well, then they won't be able to teach that. They won't have jobs to do mm. what they need, they want to do. But at the same time, you're right, you have to eventually get into these education pro- degree programs. I mean, was it, uh, I, I think I saw it was James Lindsay, mm. or maybe yourself, that were, t- were talking about Henry Giroux and, and basically bragging that he and Paolo Frieri got 100 tenured positions in education schools um, through their their publishing network. So yeah. like, and now it's just metastasized to that degree. So now it's, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, what, what, what are the statistics? Like 90, 95% liberal, 98% liberal, yeah. left liberal, woke liberal. So, you know, I, you're right. You're right. I agree. Okay. Like on this, um, you see all these parents go out and speaking up, you know, and there's videos of them and stuff. Like if I, again, if I was a parent, I'd be insanely pissed off at like college professors, you know, especially ones with tenure, you know, here are parents who are, they're taking a risk. Their employer might say, oh, you're racist. We're going to fire you. You know, we're, you're, you're going to do this or whatever. Uh, you know, if their kids are at a private school, kick their kids out or, you know, anything like that, like, or the kids get bullied. Whereas you have these professors who are not speaking up, you know, like I see, you know, like I'll, like professors who are vocal they're like oh i get hundreds of messages like john mcwhorter talked about he wrote that atlantic article and you know he keeps talking about oh, getting all kinds of things from academics who are afraid to speak out especially if you're in university isn't that your job isn't that your job to discuss dangerous ideas and you know have an open debate but like you know it's just average parents just going up and just you know putting themselves on the line now when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah. Janice Chaplin, right? Or maybe she's quoting someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you have something, you got something to lose. So what I've noticed is the, the, it's counterintuitive. The more well-heeled you are, the more you have to protect. The the less, the less you're going to step, put your neck on the on the block. So yeah, I mean that's why someone like Gabby Clark can yeah. can pursue legislation and. And, and that is, that's why I think I, I've, I've given up on the idea that academics are going to, are going to put their reputations at risk. I know. I mean, I know. I mean, it's, it's human nature though. I mean, I really yeah. think it's human nature. It's, it's, it's like, Oh, the humanity, the venality of, 
the human who can't, you know, take yeah. the risk. And I, it's, I don't even blame because it is just, it's just, just is, you know? Yeah. Okay. I so know. I went to school. So I, I Quebec's got a slightly different education system than the rest of North America because we always have to be different. So high school goes up to grade 11. Then you have a two-year thing called CEGEP, which is kind of like a junior college. And then it's three years to get your bachelor's. So it works out to the same number of years, just broken up differently. I was always interested in science. I got really good grades in science, you know, did well. So I got into CEGEP. And I mean, I, I literally had a chemistry professor tell me, if you don't do it the way I show you, like we were doing... Um, uh, redox equation. So you like, you know, you break the equation down and all that. And the way, like I took an AP class in high school, the way my teacher taught me, it really made sense to me. And I did it that way. I showed all my work, all that. The, the, the professor at CJEP was doing it slightly different way and it just didn't make sense. So I just started doing it the way I was taught and, you know, just showing all my work, going through all the steps and getting the right answer. And he would, he told me straight out, like, if you don't do it the way I show you, I'm going to fail you. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not what I, was taught science was like, it's not a body of knowledge or anything like that. It's, 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 you know, you look at it, you argue and you, you look at different ways of, so that really got me disinterested in science. And then from, and I you know, always had a, a love of history and philosophy and stuff. So I went to poli sci. I just said, screw the sciences. Like I'm just going to go into political science. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, but no, but I mean, when I started getting to things like that, no, he wasn't the only one. Like I had a biology professor tell me something similar. I had a physics teacher tell me something. To, and it was just like, this is not what science was meant to be. And it just disheartened me. So like, I just don't like, I, you know, I can see why parents would get frustrated. I could see like, but like to see that coming from the Academy, like see the cowardice of these people, like these institutions that are supposed to, you know, open debate and, you know, debating, you know, dangerous ideas and debating difficult ideas. They're just kind of cowering. And, you know, like you reward the people with tenure who have shut up for, like whatever, five or six mm -hmm. years, and then you give. Them <laughs> yeah, I you know I I, I feel like we're going to need new institutions, and I think mm -hmm. that the new institutions, if they're successful, and then they're going to put pressure on the existing ones, and then all of all of this higher education may be a may be in a bubble, mm -hmm. um, and the internet may disintermediate all of it. So, I think this may just be, you know, like what's the Bugs Bunny cartoon where Daffy Duck is in the clam at the end and he's holding onto the pearl. Like he's like, I'm rich. I'm a happy miser. You know, it's closing on him. I think that's what's maybe happening to these, some of these higher education institutions and I heard enormous about bloat. That's yeah. that they're, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's just one thing too. Like they talk about get rid of student loans and this and that. I'm like, okay, well stop hiring diversity officers at a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Stop doing all that. Like, you know, whatever, what, Yale's got what forty billion dollar trust, you know, endowment. Like, use some of that money. Like, you know, like, don't, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I could. But yeah, there, there was one university I, I heard about recently. Like, it was an online thing, and they were going to be a classical liberal university. It starts with an R. I'm trying to remember what the name of it is. Like Ralston or something. Oh like yes, yeah, I heard of them. I don't know the yeah. name. But yeah, I think that might have been it. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Like, if these people had, a, you know, if you had. A viable option i think parents would take it yeah in new york there is so much buzz about uh, of many different people who approach me saying oh we should start a different school we should start a different school private school if if the funding came through you would get people lined up around the block you'd get teachers wanting to teach there mm -hmm. uh i think it would be it would be 
uh, controversial and you would have lots of stories in the press about the anti-woke school where, you know, but I think if they just hold, hold the line and, and, and tough it out, um, I think it could, I, I think it would succeed. Um, like we talking a little bit earlier and you'd mentioned that you were thinking about working on a book. So if you wouldn't mind talking about what you're thinking about there. Yeah. I'm, I'm what I'd like to do is talk about my own experiences at grace and also mm-hmm. the experience of many teachers with their students on some of the CRT, you know, what we called programming, anti-racist and CRT mm-hmm. programming. But, uh, what I think is missing is how it affects students and how it affects collegial relationships within educational institutions and the way that it actually plays out in the context of a school. Um, I, I've spoken to many students um, at Grace. I've spoken to many students at other schools. And I think what's interesting is there, there's a, there is a, large number of students that are generally apathetic and kind of feel like, Oh, why, why are, why are the adults going crazy about all this stuff? Um, there is another group, which is, which are true believers and are arguing with their parents every night uh, about how they, you know, we need to change this capitalistic system and uh, we need to address, you know, and, and so then you have students that really do want to speak up, but, can't and so I think that there's such a I, I saw such a wide range of reactions to this kind of education that we're seeing uh, and I want to make that real for people um, that you know that maybe goes underneath a lot of the conceptual arguments um, at the level of op-eds and and uh, and Twitter like get 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 into the Part of how it's affecting students. And then also I want to talk about in the book, how the DEI industry functions, how do they gain entry into institutions? How do they convince the stakeholders? And then once they do, how do they push the curriculum into a school and how do they get teachers on board? How do they run these trainings? What's it like to, to be in a training like this? And, you know, there are, there are specific strategies now coming out with how some of the most successful DEI consultancies are reacting to the pushback. And I've, I've, I've gotten sent to me some seminars by these consultancies and where they talk openly about controlling who the, you know, who do we let into the school? Who do we let onto the board? I mean, they have a, an enormous sense of entitlement as to as to them making decisions for the decision makers. And in some cases, they'll give public speeches and statements connecting the parents who are concerned about CRT in schools with the January 6th rioters at the Capitol. So there's a real doubling down or even a tripling down going on right now. And I think it's just going to be, even though many many people are just fed up with like, do we need to keep talking about CRT? It's going to get worse. It's going to get more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be when the, when the fall starts and, you know, all the curriculum was set, you know, back in April and March. Mm-hmm. So while this was starting, so all that's going to be rolled out. And they're, the people who are pushing it are not able to compromise because of their own 
ideological commitments. They've sort of, that's part of, that's part of it is that you don't compromise. Um, James Lindsay's talked about this. So, you know, the, the fact that you, I, I just see all of the forces aligning to even make this more explosive. Um, so we will see. Yeah. Like when you mentioned the different kids, you know, like who are, some are disinterested, some are just kind of mm-hmm. going along whatever. Like, uh, okay. You know, when I first got back, the first thing I said was like, we've got secular blasphemy laws though. Like what's going on? Like, you know, it did have a faith like feeling to it. And, you know, John McWhorter's written quite a lot about it and James Lindsay has as well. And I like, if you like the way I look at it is if you go through with this, you know, CRT based curriculum, from K through 12. I mean, you know, you, we shouldn't leave out the gender stuff because that's also in there mm-hmm. as well. But I'm like, okay, these are now woke madrasas. Mm-hmm. And just like a madrasa in Pakistan, the kids who come out of the madrasas aren't all going to join the Taliban or aren't all going to join ISIS. Mm-hmm. But you'll have a significant portion of them that will think that, you know, homosexuality is illegal and they should be put in jail. Like apostates should be killed. You know, like y- you still have kids who aren't going to go strap a suicide bomb on themselves but they're going to support the people that do. And the ones that are opposed to it are just going to keep quiet because they don't want to be killed as an apostate or whatever. Like they're, you know, like there was one kid, um, he was a university student in Pakistan. Uh, I think it was in 2016, 2015 or 16. His name was Mashal Khan. And he questioned, he didn't, he wasn't an apostate. He, he, he questioned a couple of things in the Quran. He just, he was, he, when I say question, he was asking questions about them because he was curious. Mm. The next day, students and faculty at the university beat him to death just for like asking mm. some questions. So, I mean, that is going to shut anyone else up from asking questions, right? Yeah. So that's the way I look at it. And again, like, sorry, I'll ramble for a little. Like I look at, when I started looking into this, like something like repressive tolerance, that started coming into, you know, as far as I can tell, like in the mid eighties, it started coming into like, colleges of ed, like the, the ed colleges and stuff and mm-hmm. you know I, I know marcuse wrote that in 65 or whatever but um but if you look at a lot of like kids or if you okay look at the the terms of service from any social media it, it all talks about language that can do harm oh yeah it's, it's all based on harm so even though they might not agree with it 100 okay you got to censor everyone who's conservative but that idea of harm is like in the air it's an it, it's taken in everywhere so they they also imbibe that a little bit. So when you have this kind of stuff going through the schools and you're, you're indoctrinating kids from K through 12, by the time they get to university, it's, you know, they've already drunk the Kool-Aid to some degree. And then it's easier to keep going. Like, that's why I look at, you know, when Jonathan Haidt talked about 2013 is kind of when they started, started leaving the universities. I'm like, okay, well in 2010, this was in some high schools, you know, a kid going through high school in 2010 is getting to university 2014 ish. Right. So yeah, right around 2013 or just after is when you're going to see more of it leaving the university because you've got more kids coming in already thinking in that manner. Like, so like, I, that's like, for me, it's like, you know, let's, if you want to give the two options, like if kids, if parents want to send their kids to one of these schools and you give them that choice, they go to one of these schools, whatever, let's see which school does better. Let's see which school can actually produce, you know, people who can, do math, who can read, who can do whatever, like, you know, let's have that. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up, um, you know, K through the, you know, the madrasa, um, analogy because I've seen the curriculum at the kindergarten level and 
you know, from one of these consultancies and it's the Pollyanna curriculum. And the way, the way it works is um, they know that the kids see, kids see things in, in moral primary colors. So they want to establish the palette early uh, of what is good and what is bad. And then once they get that basic moral instantiation, they can run all of the history and, and um, society on top of that, the way they understand those things. So, you know, at the kindergarten level, there are eight lessons, plans totally devoted to color. So we're just going to see color. So it starts out at a perceptual level. And then it slowly pushes the idea that you, you know, this color, you, you pick your skin tone on the wall and then you identify with that skin tone and that gets tied to your, your racial uh, identity. And then, you know, even in kindergarten, in the curriculum, teachers who are, who feel confident can tie the color to the racial identity as early as kindergarten. And some of the scholarship, this is all based around the scholarship, um, scholarship maybe in quotes, because I haven't really seen the methodology of the data analysis that kids see race as early as six months. So they have to, they have to try to acknowledge it and then combat it. But yeah, I'm not sure that those studies, the, w w when they justify this claim that kids see race as early as six months, you know, th this is not a extensive analysis of the literature. This is a cherry picked study here and a cherry picked study here and there. So that there, there is not, it's all scaffolded on what I think is pretty dubious work, even though I, you know, I, I do want to read it all and, and digest it, but it's not, um, I don't think it's comprehensive in any way. Um, so, you know, that is, that's how they're running the game and that's how they're, you know, they, they're going to get them when they're young and they are getting them right now when they're young. So if you're, I mean, I think that's where the parents of young, of the youngest children really need to be vigilant because they want to make a child's socially imposed identity, the paramount way that they see themselves in the world. Once they identify as black Latino, Latinx, you know, whatever, white, then they can run, they can make all the claims on top of that. But that has to be, and if, and the, the question that I asked in the meeting in my school questioned the nature of identity itself, which is why I think they freaked out so hard because I said, to what extent must I identify with how other people see me? Which I think is just, it, 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 I, I wanted to ask a question that, I, that, that, to my mind, cut to the quick of what, what was the central shaft of the ideology and, how, and the pedagogy, which was mm -hmm. you, you are as others see you. You have, you have a fanciful personality, which is your preferences and dreams and goals as an individual, but what really matters in the world is how other people see you, and you need to acknowledge and cleave to that in some way. So I wanted to, you know, I, I, I'm a, I believe in the individual. I believe that the, yeah. the celebration and, and the divinity of the individual is, is the greatest innovation in, in social relations that we've, we've developed uh, globally. So I, you know, I, I'm not going to give that up. And I, I don't want kids to passively accept that this other way of seeing things without questioning it or feeling intimidated into to thinking it.
Yeah, there was a, so. well, there's one example from Canada. It's, it's, it's not on the race thing again. It's on the gender thing where there's a kindergarten class. And I'd spoken to a civil rights lawyer who's actually helping the parents sue the school or the school board. Now the teacher put up a little spectrum on the, on the wall. And like on one side, you had fully female on the other side, you had fully male. And they were asking the kids, put yourself there. You know, I guess they talked about, you know, you, if you're a girl, you can like cars, if you're a boy, you can like dolls and whatever, which fine. Like that's normal, right? Like, like you know, that's what it started doing that in the eighties. But this one little girl went up and she said, I'm here and pointed like fully female. And the teacher said, there's no such thing. You're lying. No one can be fully female. <laughs> now, little kid went home. I mean, she, you know, it's kindergarten, oh like five God. years old. And she was upset. She was crying, told her parents, her parents freaked out. Like, what do you, what do you, you know, like, you asked the kid to pick the kid picked and then yeah. you, you berated her in class. I was just like, come on. Yeah. I mean, well, that, that's the mask slipping. I mean, that, yeah. that shows you the agenda. It's not about freedom. It's about imposing this idea that gender is a spectrum, which is ludicrous. It's, it's, it's a massively modal, bimodal distribution. It's the idea that you could just pick anywhere and that, you know, I don't know. I, I, I find that stuff extremely agenda driven. And yeah, I mean, again, it's hypocritical yeah. because like, you know, like I said, in the eighties that started that, like, you know, it doesn't matter if a girl plays with trucks or a boy plays with dolls. It's just, it's a boy that's playing with dolls or it's a girl that's playing with trucks. So, you know, that that's how you're a girl. That's how you're a boy. Right. Now we're going, right. now you're going back to those gendered stereotypes. Like, Oh, if, uh, right. Oh, if you have long hair and you're a boy, then that means mean you're a girl. I mean, it, it's, it's like, you know, we're going yeah, backwards and everything. Gender now. Exactly. Like I, I grew up in a progressive town, uh, Ithaca, New York. And, and there the, the pro- progr- progress meant that you didn't have to gender, didn't have to be a fixed archetype. Of behaviors you could be you could be a girl and not shave your legs or you could be a guy and you could play with dolls exactly but now it's like gender categories are now seen as stereotypes and if you if you if you deviate from them well then you either need to create your own gender or you need to go to the other gender so you need so categories are now stereotypes in and of themselves i think that's really debilitating and then people are body modding around you know matching their idea of an archetype, which is not going to make them happy uh, no. in the long run, because you're just going to be fine. You're just going to fall short of this new archetype. So you're going to need to either pick a new archetype as, as expression of yourself, or you need to change yourself to match the archetype that you're trying to get to. Yeah, um, so you're like just chasing a dragon. I think that's what's happening. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds of the gender yeah. stuff because it's a whole other conversation because it's, it's, yeah, it's really yeah. screwed up. Look, um, I don't want to keep you too long. It's been really great to talk to you. If you have any advice for parents or, you know, or even students, please go ahead. Yeah. I mean, my, my main, everyone talks about the parents. I think parents are hugely important. I would just say, do your best to stay vigilant, find mm-hmm. other parents that are like-minded and, and you can collaborate and uh, work together. And it's a lot easier to get things done if you can share resources and work together. Students, um, stand up for what you, what your conscience wants to say. You know, you, you have a right to question anything and everything that you get in class. Um, it, you may lose friends. You may have, you know, quote unquote friends, people that anytime you reveal, you know, your, your inner nature to, to your peers, um, 
you're opening yourself up to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and in reputation damage, but you'll make new friends. And actually people, what I found is people respect you more when you stand up and, and stand out than if you cower and try to conform. So you, you'll be surprised. And I know it takes a lot for kids to do that, but I, I really think that's where the, that's where the real growth happens. No, all oh, that's great. Um, yeah. If you also, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Paul, at Paul D. Rossi, mm-hmm. um, D, D as in Damien, uh, Paul D. Rossi, or you can email me at teachingfortruth at gmail.com. Great. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for coming on. It was good talking to you. Thanks so much, Louis. And thanks, everyone, for listening.